Well, before I start on this morning's lesson, uh, I've been going through the Bible. We started in Genesis, maybe it's been a couple years ago now, I'm not exactly sure, and I think it has been, and um, I'm, my goal is to work through the Bible. You know, we're not going to get every passage, but we're going to get every picture, so that by the time I'm done, you'll have a good overview of all the major stories of the Bible. So if you're new with us, don't think, oh man, he's almost done with Kings, what did I miss? Just hit YouTube. And you can start at Genesis. And then when you get closer to where we are now, we've got a lot of them on our website. Real good idea to just get a good foundation in the Word of God. And uh, hopefully by the time we're done, you can have that. So I was reading through the lesson, and I ran across a passage of Scripture that appeared to contradict another passage of Scripture. And it brought all sorts of things to my mind. Like one of the things that we constantly hear from our detractors is the Bible is full of contradictions and you just can't trust it. It's not the Word of God. How many of you have ever heard that before? Yeah, people say that all the time. One of the things I just want to say to the next person who says that is show me one. Because most of them are just quoting somebody else. They don't, have you read the thing? Are you getting this firsthand or just quoting somebody? I, for one, do not think the Bible is full of contradictions. I think we are full of ignorance. And that's why we think the Bible's full of contradictions. And I don't say that because I read a book. Because every time I hit one, I stop and say, wait a minute, that seems to be a contradiction. And I get out my study books, and I get out my computer, and I try to figure it out. Probably eight, nine times out of ten, I do. But I can't always. Sometimes I'm like, you know, that one's going to have to wait. And I'm okay with that. For example, I just hit one this week. Reading in Daniel, and you'll see why next week. Reading in Daniel, and it mentions Darius becoming the next king of Babylon. Well, you go through all the archaeological resources and history books, and nobody knows who that guy is. Oh, this guy never existed. But it's funny that they would say that. Because in that same context is another guy whose name's Belshazzar. He's the one who saw the handwriting on the wall. And they used to say that guy never existed. Then they realized he did. And they found some evidence outside of the Bible. And now he exists. And now Darius doesn't exist. And I'm like, ah, just do some more research. You'll find him. So I'm not at all bothered by it. I know they'll dig him up sooner or later. But that's kind of how these things go. As soon as there's one is answered, they look for another. But here's what I found. Before I point it out to you and show you the solution, I just want to give you some pointers in general on how to study the Bible. You will save yourself a lot of grief if you apply these three pointers when you do your own Bible study. Pointer number one. All the Bible was written for us, but not all the Bible was written to us. You have to understand the difference between the Bible being for you and the Bible being to you. There's this old hymn that people used to sing, all the promises in the book are mine. No, they're not. Not all the promises in the book are mine. Some of them are, some of them aren't. And we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. Let me give you an example of one that's not. Numbers 33, 53. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Is that your promise? Can you just go seize anybody's land you want and possess it? No, you can't. We can't go to Canada and say, the Bible says we can seize your land and take it. 
and the Canadians can't come do it to us, and you can't do it to your neighbor, and back and forth. This was a specific promise to a specific people at a specific place at a specific time. We are not those people. We are not in that place, and this is not that time. So all the promises are not to us. So when you get into a book and it says something cool, don't assume it's for you. It may be, it may not be, but you've got to know. You've got to rightly divide the word of truth. So principle number one in studying the word of God is recognize that, yes, the entire Bible is for you, but not the entire Bible is to you. That's principle number one. Principle number two, apply the six W's. Every time you study the word of God, ask who, what, when, where, why, and how. Those are your six W's. Some of you are thinking, Steve, how does it start with W? I know, but I couldn't say apply the five W's in the H. It just doesn't sound good. So we're going with the six W's. And besides, how ends with a W. So we still got six W's. When you get to a passage of Scripture, say, who's speaking here? And who's this person speaking to? And who's this person speaking about? Ask who? And why? What happened in the context? There's your why and your what. So you, you just go, you got to analyze it. You just can't read it all. Imagine this. I write a letter to my wife, who I just had a fight with. Dear Schmoopy, I feel really bad about what happened. I want you to know I'll do anything to make it right. Please forgive me. I'm just a human struggling. Would you please meet me next Thursday at, what's your favorite restaurant? Brushfire. Please meet me uh, Thursday night at Brushfire. Not romantic enough. Give me a more romantic one. El, Nindito? El Nindito? El Minuto. Please meet me at El Minuto Thursday night so we can talk it through. I'll treat you to dinner and dessert, and I have a present for you. Yours truly, Schmoopy. Now, if you pick up that letter and meet me, at El Minuto and expect me to buy you dinner, call you schmoopy, and give you a present, you're horribly mistaken. There is a restaurant called that, but I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to schmoopy. So the Bible is a bunch of writings to a bunch of different people. We can learn from it, but you're not all schmoopy. You got to understand that. So when you ask who, what, when, why, where, and how, like that first one I gave you, God was talking to Israel who is displacing the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites because of their sin, and taking Israel out of Egypt and giving them the promised land. That's only what that refers to, and nothing else. So, number one, who is it talking? Um, it's all written for us, but not to us. Number two, the six W's. And number three, the Bible contains principles and promises. You have to learn to differentiate between the two. The Bible might say something like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a promise. You become a believer, you will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But then there are also principles, like this one. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many of you know of a story of a child that was trained up properly, and when he was old, he departed from it? Yeah. Oh, then the Bible's wrong. No, it's not. It's not a promise. It's a principle. Generally speaking, you raise your kids right, they go right. That's the principle. But sometimes they won't go right. 
And the opposite is true too. Sometimes you raise them wrong and they go right. Praise God. The principle is the obvious one. You teach them right, they learn right, they grow right. That's just common sense. But there's still freedom of choice. There's still people that make bad mistakes. This is the passage of scripture that seemed to have the contradiction, by the way. It said, train up a child the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And now I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture of a child who was trained right and did depart from it. Is it a contradiction? No. It's only a contradiction if you don't know the difference between a promise and a principle. But if you apply the difference, then it's not a contradiction at all. He's one of the exceptions. But before I read you that verse, I'll tell you a nice Jewish story. Three Jewish ladies sit down for lunch. They all pull out their menus. First one sits, sit down, and just goes. <sighs> the second one sets down her menu and just goes, oi, 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 oi. Oi, 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 oi. That's Jewish, by the way. <laughs> the third one picks up her menu, sets it down, picks it up, sets it down, says in Yiddish, oi, vezmir, woe is me, oi, ve. The first lady says, you know what? That's enough talk about the kids. Let's order. <laughs> Not my kids. Somebody else's kids. You guys are great. So here's the story. We're going to talk to you about a father, talk to you about a son. Here's the father. We talked about him a couple weeks ago, King Hezekiah. Here's what it says about Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. This man loved God and did everything he could, not only to pursue God himself, but as I showed you a couple weeks ago, he brought people to God. This is what he did. He was an amazing servant of God. Now let's see what it says about his son. Manasseh. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What? Wasn't he raised right? Of course he was raised right. But for whatever reason, sometimes people just choose to go stupid on you. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Not only did he not father follow his father, he undid what his father did. Bad guy. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Pra what? He sacrificed his son in the fire. Practiced sorcery, divination, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. And he has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. It was just a couple of chapters ago. That's what happened to Israel the northern kingdom that was wiped out. You would have thought they'd have learned their lesson. But no, they're learning the lesson of Israel. They're doing the exact same thing. God says, that's it. No more. I'm going to destroy you. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria. 
who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. There's several amazing things here. One of which is, Israel wasn't destroyed. Judah. Assyria conquered them, but turned them into a vassal. Didn't wipe them out. They still could exist. But King Manasseh, hooking his nose, dragged off and made prisoner. God said he was going to destroy Judah, but he didn't. What's going on? It even gets crazier. Manasseh, in his distress, sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved and listened to his plea. Wow. He sacrificed his son in the fire, committed all sorts of murders, worshipped idols, spit in the face of God 20 times over, got into deep trouble, and then he looked for God. But did God say, no, you had your chance, dude, no. No, God was moved. And God forgave him. Wow. We serve a God who you just can't tick off. I mean, you can. He was hooking his nose, dragged off. But as soon as he apologized, God said, okay, God is just so merciful, so gracious. We need to be more that way. You know, we seem to, we get offended with injustice, and well, we should. But then we put a stake in the ground and say, no, it's just not right, and I'm not bending. Well, what if God did that? All the stakes would be through our hearts. (laughs) He's always willing to forgive. As long as you can really say you're sorry, And notice, it's not just words. He humbled himself greatly. And God was moved. No matter where you are in your life, you humble yourself before God. He will forgive you. He is just that way. And we need to be more that way. He didn't just forgive him. He brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. He let him be king again. This is probably going to get a lot of people mad. So I'll apologize now, but I'm going to say it anyway. Pastors are supposed to be above reproach. That is, when a congregation elects an elder, they have to elect somebody that's, you know, above reproach. Nobody's perfect, so that's taken into the the account. But some people go so far is they will deny somebody the right to be a pastor who has sin in their background. Like, what if a pastor had previously committed adultery? They'll say he can never be in ministry again. I understand that. But King David committed adultery and murder as a prophet and a king. And he repented before God, and God put him back back into ministry. He was still a prophet, still wrote scripture after that. So I'm not trying to say, hey, go ahead and sin. God will forgive you. That's not what I'm saying. Sin is evil. Don't do it. I am saying, though, don't get to the point in your life where you just think you're so worthless, you've blown it so much that God couldn't possibly forgive you. God can forgive because his forgiveness is bigger than your mess-ups. His heart is bigger than your hard head. 
So he brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. He got rid of all the altars he had built on the Temple Hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. He restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed. And he told Judah, serve the Lord God of Israel. Wow! The worst king in all of Israel's history just gave his heart back to God. That is an amazing story. God is in the business of forgiving sins. There was a rabbi who didn't believe in Jesus, hated his followers, made it his mission in life to arrest them, try them, and execute them as being heretics in Israel. Crazy thing is, Rabbi Saul one day met the resurrected Jesus. Boy, did he repent fast. But could you imagine, now he's a believer in Jesus and he was renamed the Apostle Paul. He's a believer in Jesus and he realizes he did everything he could to stamp out the faith and he killed people in the name of Jesus. Wouldn't you think he would, there's no hope for a guy like him. Talk about being a God enemy. He was the worst of God enemies. And he became the great Apostle Paul who brought the faith to most of the globe and wrote most of the New Testament. Here's what he said about his sin. This is a true saying, to be completely accepted and believed. Messiah Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But God was merciful to me in order that Christ Jesus might show his full patience in dealing with me, the worst of sinners, as an example for all who would believe later in him and receive eternal life. Paul was saying... I'm the poster child for bad guys. If God for, can, can forgive me, he can certainly forgive you. This wasn't Paul being extra humble, saying, oh, I'm the worst sin sinner. He was being honest. He could not think of anybody as bad as himself. He killed people who loved Jesus. And he said, yet yeah, God forgave me. And if he can forgive me, he can forgive you for sure, no matter what you've done. If he can forgive David, he can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive Paul. Humble yourselves greatly. And he can forgive you too. But, there's always got to be a big B-U-T, doesn't there? But, Judah still was destroyed. The way I understand this, the way I reconcile it, forgiveness and yet destruction. Well, first of all, God put off the destruction for a couple of generations. And I'm going to talk about that shortly. But what I want to share with you now, the way I understand and resolve all this, it's the sowing and reaping principle. I went to a website where people post their stories. It's, you know, one of those forums where people just chat. Let me read to you. True story. I contracted herpes through a one-time, thought-it-be-okay, heat-of-the-moment encounter. It's uncomfortable and painful, sometimes physically and mentally and I'll have to accept the consequences for the rest of my life. But not one single painful outbreak occurs without me thanking my lucky stars that I didn't contract HIV. Please give this some serious thought. She committed what the Bible calls fornication, sex outside of marriage. And she contracted a miserable disease because of it. Can she be forgiven? Yes. Will God take away her disease? Probably not. 
forgiven, but will still suffer for the rest of her life. More than likely. God may do it. He, he does heal people, but usually there's this whole sowing and reaping thing going on. We suffer the consequences of our own actions. Hopefully, so that we can learn. I've heard it said that a wise man learns from other people's mistakes and an average man from his own. But a fool learns from no one's. Another example, true story, not that old, but I'll read to you as I found it. Sin can be removed, but the consequences may not. Last night, a 66-year-old man was hit by a D-train at the 50th Street Station in Brooklyn around 7.30 p.m., according to the Daily News. The victim told rescue workers he had fallen onto the track bed. An MTA official said his left leg was severed under the knee and his right leg was crushed. The cops say the man was drunk. Drunken idiot fell in front of a moving train and lost his legs because of it. Can he be forgiven? Yes. He can become clean and sober and a righteous man of God and a pastor. But his legs won't grow back. And you know what? If he does become a pastor, he'll have an object lesson to share with people for the rest of his days and maybe be thankful for it and hopefully keep somebody else from making the same mistakes he made. Let's get personal now. We make decisions all the time. They're not always the smart decisions. Don't expect God to always bail you out. He loves you, but he's not going to necessarily make your legs grow back or heal your diseases. So my advice is to you, don't get to that part of the story. Obey so you don't get hurt. Obey up front, not afterwards. A, lifetimes of, a lifetime of bad decisions, financial decisions, may lead to years of debt. Doesn't mean God's going to send you the lottery ticket. But it's also never too late to start fresh with God either. Judah was attacked and destroyed a few generations later, and we'll talk about it next week, as a consequence of Manasseh's sin. Manasseh was forgiven, and yet things were so destroyed, so ruined by what he did, that there was just no hope anymore for Israel. It had to be destroyed. I know it's hard to see, but I got these cool scales here. Balances. And what I want to do is we'll think of this side as being God's mercy. His love, his grace. And this side, justice, judgment. You know, God is just, and he will not let sin go unpunished. So how, do they, how does he balance those two things? Well, honestly, not very fairly. Because God's mercy, if you read through the Bible, is always outdoing his justice. Always out. Mercy triumphs over justice, James wrote. Manasseh, case in point. He was big evil for years. And he said he was sorry, and God forgave him. Mercy triumphs over justice. But that doesn't mean there is no justice. It wasn't just Manasseh that had the problem. It was all of Judah. So maybe Manasseh repented, but what about the rest of Judah? 
Now remember, by the time we get to the story of Manasseh, Israel, the northern kingdoms, has already been destroyed. But God was with them for hundreds of years, forgiving their sins. He kept sending them prophets. And what did they do? They killed the prophets. And yet he kept forgiving them. But eventually, he said, you know, I'm only going to put up with this so long. And by the time we get to Manasseh, it's like this. Judgment is just about ready to happen. It's been hundreds of years of grace. But the time comes when the scales tip. And there's just no room left for anything but judgment. And that's where we are in Judah's history. Manasseh, okay, that's it. I'm going to destroy the country. I'm sorry. Okay, you're forgiven. So on the one hand, I'm telling you, God will forgive you. He's very merciful. He's very gracious. He's very kind. Don't ever think you've done too much. But hey, don't jump in front of a moving train. You might lose your legs. Don't take off a holy God. You might lose your nation. And that's exactly what happened to Israel and is going to happen to Judah, and we'll see it next week. But for us, you're sitting here, you're breathing, you're alive, you're well, you're listening in. Wherever you are, it's never too late to have a fresh start with God. Psalm 103, listen to what it says, verses 10 through 13. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Amen and amen. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The New Testament says it this way. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are new. Before I finish up, just tell you something about my, my own life. Something that changed the way I looked at life altogether. Sometimes it's easy to, sometimes it's easy to quit, to give up when things are hard. But where does that get you? So I use the illustration. Let's say you've been digging a hole. It's a hole of stupid decisions, bad mistakes, financial mistakes, family mistakes. Next thing you know, you can't even see the sun. You're 20 feet down in a narrow hole. And you finally have come to your senses. But you're 20 feet down. And you go, what's the point now? I can never get up. And some people just quit trying. Well, my advice is, first of all, throw out the shovel. Don't dig any deeper. Yeah, but I'm still 20 feet down. There's no way of getting out. Yes, there is. God's got a rope. That's it. God's got a rope. Or somebody on the top might kick some dirt in. Or you can start climbing your way up. But it's impossible. It's not impossible. Let's say you try and you try and you try. You might get out. But I can tell you this. If you don't, you won't. You won't. Here's how it ties to my story. It was a little more positive. I wanted to go for a master's degree. I'd 
got my bachelor's years ago, and boy, was that hard. Now I've got children, I've got a ministry, I can't go back to school. And almost every school wants you to move to their school and go full-time. I'm like, yeah, right. I'm just going to give up my family and my career and my church, church is, to, get to, to pursue a degree. That's not happening. Well, they've got some extension school programs. And they got, you can do it online, and you can be self-taught and follow their syllabus. But man, that's going to take forever. Well, Steve, what if it does? What if it takes five years? If you start now, where are you going to be in five years? Done. If you don't start now, where are you going to be in five years? Exactly where I am now. If the time passes, it can pass and I can have nothing, or it can pass and I can have something. And if it doesn't pass, I'm in heaven and I'm all right with that. So I decided, what the heck? I won't stress over it. I won't work real hard at it. I'll just chip away at it. Eventually, I'll get my classes done. You know, if, if I've got a hard couple of months, I'll, I'll take a sabbatical. I won't do classes those couple of months. That happened to be one of the years I went to Israel, my first trip to Israel. I'm not doing school now. You know, and I had other ministries going on. I just said, okay, I'll put it on. I won't do an assignment for a couple of months. I went to one of those schools where, hey, sink or swim, it's all on you. For me, that was great because I don't need pressure to, to succeed. Some of us do, and I understand that. But with that, I didn't. I just needed to be left alone and allowed my own pace. And when I had energy, I did it. When I didn't, I didn't. And yeah, I got a, like a one-year degree in about four or five years. But I did it. So the thing is, even if you're like in financial ruin and despair, just throw out the shovel, start climbing your way out. In five years, seven years, you'll be out. But if you just sit in there and whine and complain, in five or seven years, you're going to be exactly where you were. And don't keep digging. Don't keep digging. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So five simple steps to making a fresh start. Number one, confess your sins. Humble yourself greatly before God. Confession isn't just saying, yeah, you're right, I messed up. Now, if that's all you feel about it, that's all you're going to get out of it. It's got to be for real. To ask God to forgive you for real. Number three, you're in the pit, so ask God to direct you. Ask him to throw you a rope. Maybe it won't take five or seven years to get out. You might get out a lot sooner. I can't tell you. Number four, commit to following God's will for your life. Commit. And number five, start following Jesus today. The longer you put it off, the deeper your hole. And nobody is granted a tomorrow. You realize that. Some people die when they're three. Some when they're 30. Some when they're, when they're 110. When are you going to die? You don't know. So if you put off a decision, a big one, like following Jesus till tomorrow, you're gambling with your soul. You have no idea if you're going to have it tomorrow. And you know, buy a lottery ticket, waste a buck. But don't gamble with your soul. That's, the stakes are just too high. In just a couple of minutes, I'm going to have the band come up and join to lead us in a closing song. I want to let you know there's a prayer room over there. Maybe you're in a hole right now. Maybe it's a financial hole. Maybe it's a spiritual hole. Maybe, maybe you just have some bad health and you want prayer. God answers prayers. We have seen people who've had cancer, come back and say, my cancer's gone. 
people with all sorts of aches and pains come back and say their aches and pains are gone. I cannot promise you God will heal you. He does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. But at least let us pray for you. So if you're in a hole or there's just something going on in your life that just isn't a square, please join us in the prayer room after the songs. Please pray with me as the band comes up. Lord God, thank you for being a God of fresh beginnings. I just cannot, I'm overwhelmed with how often you're willing to forgive people. I just can't imagine a guy like Manasseh having any hope left. And yet you turn around and forgive him. Thank you for being that way. Please forgive me. Please forgive us. Please help us to see our own, our own sins and our shortcomings and convict us that we might humble ourselves greatly. Help us to follow you with our entire hearts, our entire souls, to be fruitful and productive and blessed. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.